Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This episode is sponsored by the Bookshelf Bookstore Cinema and E-Bar, located in Guelph, Ontario. On Tuesday, August 27th, you can catch Carolyn Mark and Danny Nash performing at the E-Bar. In the cinema this week, you can see Still Mine, Blue Jasmine, Alien, and 20 Feet from Stardom. And for an amazing selection of new Canadian and international bestsellers, including the works of Grill Marcus, visit the bookstore. The bookshelf is located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, Check out bookshelf.ca for more info. Creative Control with Dish Comic. Hey, how you doing? I have an intermittent uh, tickle in my throat. I had a very full weekend seeing live music by people like The Replacements, Iggy and the Stooges, Rocket from the Crypt, Joel Plaskett, Dinosaur Jr., Career Suicide, I, I, The Great Kingdom. My, my, I just was talking a lot. I was hosting at the Peterborough Folk Festival and then at loud shows where I was trying to have sort of conversations as best you can. So I'm a little hoarse, I apologize. But I'm very excited to say that esteemed music writer Griel Marcus is on the program today to discuss the brand new edition to Bob Dylan's Bootleg series. Volume 10, another self-portrait 1969 to 1971, is out now. So we'll get to a quick message and then Griel Marcus and I will get right into it. Close to 20 years now, Joel Plaskett has been writing music that's smart enough to keep you listening to songs with meaning waiting to be discovered, while also rocking you into enough of a frenzy, ah, you just want to make a little noise. Halifax's favorite son returns to Guelph after a triumphant headlining set at the 2012 Hillside Festival, and he's coming back with his awesome band. Yes, the Joel Plaskett Emergency play the River Run Center on Friday, September 13th as part of the 25th annual Eden Mills Writers Festival. They'll be joined by the fantabulous Jim Guthrie and also Bedini Band, whose Dave Bedini will be doing a reading from his new book, Keon and Me, My Search for the Lost Soul of the Leafs. For tickets and more info about this accessible all-ages concert, please visit the River Run Center box office, riverrun.ca, and edenmillswritersfestival.ca. Real Marcus is one of the most revered writers and cultural historians in the world. Since the late 60s, the California-based Marcus has demonstrated an uncanny ability to examine the broader social implications of musical movements, often recontextualizing them in a profoundly illuminating way. He was the first reviews editor at Rolling Stone magazine. His writing has appeared in other notable publications like The Village Voice and The Believer. And he's authored classic books like Mystery Train, Lipstick Traces, A Secret History of the 20th Century, Invisible Republic, or, as it was later renamed, The Old Weird America, and many, many more. Marcus is also regarded as the most astute authority 
on the work of Bob Dylan, and with the August 27th release of Dylan's The Bootleg Series Volume 10, Another Self-Portrait, 1969-1971, with which Marcus is inextricably connected, it seems like a good time to get his take on it. Uh, here now to discuss this new Bob Dylan archive collection is Greel Marcus. Uh, hello, Greel. How are you? I'm just fine. Nice to be with you. It's a great pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for uh, the time. You wrote one of the most famous lines in the history of rock criticism when you opened your Rolling Stone review of Self-Portrait with, What is this shit? <laughs> and uh, my understanding is that you felt like you were reflecting the feeling of, of most Dylan fans at that time, right? Well, you know, the review, which was very long, um, I think it had 25, 24, 25 parts, just like the album, which had 24 songs on it. Um, the review was meant to reflect the conversation that was going on around this album. Uh, it was something everybody was talking about. Whenever a new Bob Dylan album came out, people would be talking about it. They'd be saying, have you heard? What about this? I like this. Uh, you know, I, I've never heard anything like that. And the conversation over this album was, if anything, more intense and, and um, you know, maybe even hysterical. Hmm. Um, and also at that time in 1970, when Bob Dylan or the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or uh, any number of other people, when they released an album, the FM uh, stations would play the whole thing, and they'd play it straight through. Um, and I remember hearing Self-Portrait on the radio and the, the DJ saying, I, I don't know if I should keep playing this. Uh, you know, people are calling up and saying, take it off, and, and Bob Dylan uh, deserves to have his whole album played whenever he releases one, but you know, gosh, I don't know what's going on here. <laughs> and in fact, a lot of the album really did sound terrible, and a lot of it really was terrible. Although, you know, I continue to run into people. I ran into a guy in a record store yesterday who said, I love The Boxer, which I think Dylan's version of Paul Simon, Paul Simon's The Boxer on the original self-portrait, which to me was the real low point of uh, an album with many of them um and it's not it's not included on um on the new release another self portrait but you know what is this shit that's what people were saying that was the beginning of almost every conversation so it seems to me that's you know any honest review had to begin that way yeah that was that was the opening line that, of a conversation about this record um, and so, sure, I knew it would be provocative. I knew it would, you know, cause people to say, huh, what? And um, I didn't know it would be quite so memorable as it maybe it's turned out to be. Yeah. Uh, this was before I was born, but I can only assume that up until Self-Portrait, Dylan was beloved and mostly given a pass by critics. Was this the first sign of weakness, so to speak? I don't know that he was given a pass. You know, um, he was making music that was so extraordinary, that that was so unexpected, record by record. Um, you know, if you if you start with, um, I, I suppose the last album he made that you could call um, expected, that wasn't shocking in a way, was the times they are changing. That that was the album in 1964 that that totally wrapped up, fixed, solidified the idea of Bob Dylan as, as um, you know, the voice of righteousness, mm. uh, the, 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 the person who, uh, who would speak the truth and would dig out the truth and find out the words uh, and the melodies to put it across in a way that was uh, undeniable and inescapable. And, um, you know, the album is just filled with protest songs. Uh, he he appears on the cover in a, you know in a version of an old photograph of Woody Guthrie uh, in his Dust Bowl uh, costume, and um, you know he is the man of the people, and it's also it's the only Bob Dylan album you know with the possible exception of maybe Saved that's completely humorless. There isn't mm -hmm. a moment on it. That you know, where there's a smile, where there's a joke, where there's 
any irony. Um, but after that, you have another side of Bob Dylan, where he's fooling around with all kinds of wonderfully crazy songs. And then uh, bring it all back home, where he's got these these visionary manifestos like uh, It's All Right, Ma, and then these wonderful songs, these hilarious songs played with a band. Um, and then you've got Highway 61 Revisited, which is uh, like nothing anyone had ever heard or ever imagined. Blonde on Blonde, a series of, of songs that are so musically accomplished where the singing, the harmonica playing is so thrilling uh, and moving. And then John Wesley Harding, where everything is stripped down, everything is austere. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a return, in a way, to the, the deepest strains of folk music. So, you know, moving through that, there's there's no pass to give. It's It's an attempt you know, on the part of a writer who wants to grapple with this stuff to, um, you know, to speak on the on the level that it's set. And even Nashville Skyline was also a shock. No one had ever heard or imagined that Bob Dylan could croon, that, you know, deep inside he, would, he really wanted to be Bing Crosby. Um, and so the whole notion of, what a Bob Dylan wa- album was, was it was going to be a surprise. Mm-hmm. Now, the album that came out, the Bob Dylan album that came out between Nashville Skyline and uh, Self-Portrait was a double album with a white cover called The Great White Wonder. Mm-hmm. It was the first Bob Dylan bootleg. Um, and it had all kinds of marvelous stuff on it, basement tapes, songs, uh, outtakes from bringing it all back home and from much earlier in his career, all kinds of stuff that nobody, most people had never heard or never imagined existed. Um, And though it was a grab bag, um, leaping from here to there and back, it it was full of marvels. And, you know, there's a way in which self-portrait is Bob Dylan's version of his previous album, even though he had nothing to do with releasing it. Do you think it, do you think self-portrait was his response to the Great White Wonder in some way? I think you know it's it's very hard to know what the idea or the feeling or the motive behind this album was. Um, you know, I was certainly I was not, not the only person to point out that gee, this self-portrait is really just like the last Bob Dylan album, uh, the Great White Wonder. It's a hodgepodge, but it's not as good. Bob Dylan himself has said both in interviews and in chronicles that uh, he 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 was sick of the burden of fame and and uh, responsibility that had been placed on him. He's the voice of his generation. He's the he's not only the seeker after truth. He he knows what the truth is. Um, you know what did he call it? Big Bubba of rebellion, Prince of protest or pope pope of protest he just wanted all that done with and he thought about how the way um, melville's reputation was savaged by critics um after uh, pierre and um and and he lost his audience and he you know he 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 he, he went and hid in the custom house for the next 30 years and dylan said, well, maybe maybe I can pull that off. Maybe I can put out something that's so awful that uh, people will say, oh, he was always a fraud, and leave me alone, uh, and I can get on with my life. You know, what a, what a terrible position to be in when you're, you know, you're 29 years old. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and people have already decided who you are and what you're supposed to do for the rest of your life, and I, I give a lot of credence to that. Hmm. Um, on the other hand, it's also possible that Dylan came up with the idea of let's let's put a record together. We'll call it Self-Portrait, but it won't have any of my songs or none that have, are of any consequence. You know, just a couple of half-written demos and instrumentals, and you know, I'll put my name on them, and you know, I'll put my name on all these old folk songs too, like uh, It Hurts Me Too. 
and uh, uh, Alberta and uh, and Little Sadie, and mm-hmm. I'll say, you know, these are these are my songs, because anyone's true self portrait is made up of the things that they love, uh, that they're attracted to. That's what defines us. Now you can say, well, maybe that's a philosophical argument that just didn't get realized um, because it had too much terrible stuff on it. But but I don't believe that. I really don't believe that because um, if if that's your idea, you know, I'm I'm going to come up with this radically new idea of what a self portrait can be. Um, then he would have put more heart into you know, take a message to Mary and um, the Everly, the other Everly Brothers song he did. Uh, so many of the stuff is, dis, uh, so many of the songs are, are done in a way that's dispirited, that's half-hearted, that's in a way full of either contempt for the material or, or self-loathing. Huh. Um, it's, 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 and, it's very interesting that you say this, because like you say, I, I run into people, I just had conversations, like when I hear... Aspects of Jim James from My Morning Jacket, uh, when, when I hear his material, or I was talking recently with uh, an artist who goes by the name Bonnie Prince Billy about self-portrait. Oh, sure. Yeah, we, we all Will Oldham. Yeah, Will Oldham. We all kind of agree that this record is sort of weirdly maligned, like there's actually something that we enjoy about it. I mean, maybe it's we enjoy it separate from the Dylan that we all know, in a sense. Like, it is this weird... Anomaly, and it was at the time of this anomaly in his catalog. But there's just something about the f- kind of freedom that we hear in it, I think, that he seems to be relishing to just do whatever he wants that I, I think we find appealing. Like, I, I've never had a negative reaction to that. I was listening to it again last night, and I just, I don't have the. Re- and then I was reading your review of it too, which <laughs> it kind of. Inf- I need to go back and listen to the record again after rereading your review because. I don't know. It's weird how it informs how your review takes it down so many notches when my reaction to it is mostly positive. And as I say, many people like it seems when I when I hear Jim James, he seems to be fond of this era. Well, you know, I never want to, you know, stop anybody from enjoying anything. Um, But a couple of years ago, Mojo magazine asked me to write about this album again and see if it sounded different after so many years. And so I went back and I listened to it. I played it all day long and into the next day. And what I was stuck with was the the, the stuff that I loved the first time around, uh, Days of 49, Copper Kettle. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounded even better maybe than it had uh, in the first place. And, and the stuff that um, that made me cringe uh, sounded even worse. But uh, a year or so ago, uh, Jeff Rosen uh, played me some of the uh, undubbed uh, rehearsal sessions that that Dylan had done with David Bromberg in particular um, of uh, In Search of Little Sadie and Alberta, um, any number of other things like that. And, and it was just a revelation to hear them. Um, they had so much heart, and they and they, you know, they they just reached out uh, to the listener, and they were intimate in a way that uh, no music from Bob Dylan that I'd heard hmm. had ever been. And I said, "Oh, I've just got to write about this stuff." Um, so luckily, I, I I got another chance. But um, there's also stuff on on the new set on another self portrait that. You know, there are some misbegotten experiments there, too. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you have something with strings, you have something with horns. Um, and that's there to show, you know, how how somebody is fooling around. Has said, let's try this. Why not? Um, what the hell? <laughs> it's, it's, it's also interesting. You know, my, my original review starts out, what is this shit? And then the very next uh, line is about all the tired horses the first song on the album where bob dylan doesn't sing there there are three women singing he's playing guitar mm-hmm. um of this this old folk song all the tired tired horses in the sun how am i going to get any riding done you know they won't get up there just to sleep in the meadow mm-hmm. um and it's beautiful it's just gorgeous 
so the first song on the on the record is is a gem um and then you know you, you descend into um to me a realm of music where it doesn't seem that the person behind it gives a damn um these are songs that maybe he loved once and now they're just uh stuff lying around on the floor and pick this up and say that looks pretty nice i'll throw it against the wall this this one's not so great i guess i'll leave it on the floor Hmm. that's how it felt um and i think most of the material on another self-portrait feels very different um where everything is valuable and it's it's an attempt to make these songs come alive both for the person who's performing them and the and and whoever might be listening to it. I know you have misgivings about the performances uh, themselves from Dylan uh, on down, but it it does sound to me that the production is what really irks you uh, to this day. Well, I certainly didn't think about that at the time. I figured any Bob Dylan album was what Bob Dylan wanted it to be. Mm. You know, it, it didn't occur to me that there'd be these tapes that would be sent to Bob Johnson for him to... Uh, sweeten, you know, for him to make uh, sound better than than maybe they had before, and they ended up in some cases sounding very muffled. I mean, muffled musically and muffled emotionally. Yeah. Um, and it, it was surprising to me when I listened to the uh, all the material that makes up another self-portrait. Some of the songs sounded so radically different. Uh, it took me a while to realize this was the same take that appears on the original album, say, of, of Little Sadie yeah. or, or Days of 49. It's exactly the same vocal take, but there is um, an openness. There, there is a, uh, um, an energy that, that's absolutely apparent that, that just got submerged uh, first time around. Yeah, well, when I, when I hear Pretty Sarrow, it's one of the most remarkable Bob Dylan performances I've ever heard. And it's from this era, and it's just, I believe it's just him. I think that maybe there's some other guitar accompaniment, but it's him on guitar and singing, and it's beautiful. Yeah, that's that's one of the great knockouts. Yeah, You know, I've, I have always felt that the reason Bob Dylan didn't include Blind Willie McTell on, um, Infi- I guess it was in, Infidel, Inf- yeah, yeah. was that it... it it's so good. It's such a great song. It's such a profound performance. Uh, you know, whether it's singing Mark Knopfler's guitar playing, the the urgency um, and the intensity. I've always felt that it was left off Infidels because it would make the rest of the album sound absolutely pathetic. It was just too good. And... Maybe what, what, that's is, what, what is that sound? <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a smoke alarm. Um, and maybe um, maybe that's a story with Pretty Sarah, why it was left off. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, um, some cases it, we're never going to know. I think, you know, when people hear that, I, I think it's become a pretty general reaction is, uh, you know, oh my God, where has this been all my life? Yeah. That song in, in particular. One of the most remarkable aspects of this era, 1969 to 1971, is, is Dylan's voice. And beginning around Nashville Skyline, he really pushed the range up, his range up, and he sounds like a young man, maybe a, a choir boy even. And, and there's a line of thought that Dylan was returning to his first singing voice in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, and, and I mean, the, the, the line of thought is sort of substantiated by what have emerged as some of his earliest pre-fame recordings. Like his voice is kind of similar to when he first started singing. So do you think that the combination of utilizing this voice, um, his choice in songs to, to cover, and, and even the title, Self-Portrait, do you think that suggests that he was really trying to get his innocence back? Because the general line of thought is that this album was some kind of escape route for him, but I'm wondering if it was also some way of recovering his past life. Uh, I think innocence is overrated, and particularly <laughs> with somebody... Um, as um, as smart and as serious deep down as Bob Dylan. Hmm. No, I can't believe it was an attempt to recover anything like innocence. It may have been. 
it may have been an attempt to recover the kind of enthusiasm and delight that he had when he first began to hear these kinds of songs in Minneapolis in 1959, 1960. Um, you know, when he's meeting Tony Glover and John Kerner and John Pancake and, you know, Dave Whitaker and any number of other people in the in the Twin Cities who uh, who are playing the anthology of American folk music and all kinds of other old, uh, hard-to-find records and Woody Guthrie records where he's saying, um, he's saying, where has this been all my life? Oh my, I had no idea this even existed in the world, and now this is my whole world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But if that was part of the feeling, part of the motive, you know, it would take a long time. It would take more than 20 years for that to really happen. It's it's with Good As I've Been to You in 1992 and World Gone Wrong a year later when that sense of finding that these old folk songs, this stuff that everybody in Greenwich Village did, everybody and his sister and everybody and her brother, everybody did these songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it got to the point where you never wanted to hear Pretty Sorrow Again by anybody. Uh, got enough. And, um, and yet, you know, in, in the early 90s, uh, Bob Dylan goes back to these kinds of songs as if he never heard them before. He never really heard them. That they're only beginning to speak to him now. They're only beginning to, to tell what's in them. Uh, and if that was an attempt to, you know, make these songs talk again in 1970 i think it would take a long time for that to really happen it's interesting that you bring up good as i've been to you and world gone wrong and even the discussion that you just raised because i I kind of feel like the only dylan recordings from the era that we have been talking about 69 71 um the only record more more malign than self-portrait is likely dylan um which is a kind of companion piece for the back end of sessions from I believe around the same period. Um, what's your insight there? Is that that's 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 more or less correct? No, I don't think that's correct at all. Oh, uh, th- this is an album that came out when at the end of 1973, yeah, beginning of 1974, when Dylan had jumped from Columbia to uh, Asylum to mm. David Geffen's label. Yeah, and this is Columbia going through the vaults uh, and finding the worst stuff they could find most of it from this period or, or self-portrait sessions. Yeah, 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 that's what I was referring uh, and, to. Yeah. And putting it out to embarrass him. Um, th- you know, this, this was an act of, of, of corporate payback or revenge. Um, so this, you know, and, and there, there are actually a couple things on that record that I like, um, like Lakes of Pontchartrain, but it, it was an attempt to make him look bad. No, I don't, <laughs> you know... No, I don't buy that at all. Well, but they are from the same period, though, right? Yeah. That's all yeah. I was getting. What I'm saying is that it's interesting. Well, now it's getting even weirder. I mean, because the story you're telling is the one I've heard as well. The idea that uh, this was a revenge. Uh, Dylan was like a revenge ploy from from Columbia. Self-portrait is this, as we kind of discussed, some kind of weird self-sabotage. <laughs> it's It's a very, like... It's like a film noir aspect to this era of Dylan's life that is very strange to me. And I, I'm wondering how how does this time register for you on the sort of weirdness scale of Dylan's work? Um, there's one thing that I wish had been put on another self-portrait. Um, and, and, and I bring it up just to say that you, you just... Bob Dylan is a, is a natural trickster. Uh, he, he is always going to be one step ahead of where you think you are, maybe one step behind and following you when you think nobody's following you. Mm. Um, right around this time, uh, George Harrison does the concert for Bangladesh. I forget what year it was, if it was 1970, 1971, uh, at Madison Square Garden, and, and Bob Dylan does a set. Um it's just him and George Harrison and, uh, you know, I guess Ringo Starr is playing drums. 
Um, and he he does a set of songs, and they're all just staggeringly good. Mm-hmm. And they're so full of heart, and they, and they he is projecting with with such uh, a, a sense of desperation. That's kind of what you hear. And then he gets to just like a woman, and you know, a great song, uh, a fabulous performance on Blonde on Blonde. Nothing, you know, he could never better it. Mm-hmm. And he does. He just makes everything stop. Uh, he silences Madison Square Garden. If anybody was opening a candy wrapper or saying something to a friend, they weren't doing it then. Um, and so, like anybody, you know, if you've ever been on stage, if you've ever, ever performed, you know that there is no telling when it's going to be good and when it's going to be bad, when everything is going to happen and when everything falls apart. You just can't control it. And you don't know what makes it happen, whether it has to do with, you know, what one of the people in in your group did five minutes before, uh, whether there was something in the news that day that upset or threw you off or threw somebody else off, somebody in the audience that you can't take your eyes off because there's something so alluring or disgusting about a a single person. You just don't know. Hmm. Um, And that was one of those nights when um, uh, Bob Dylan found things that he had never shown before. Maybe he didn't know he had. Hmm. So all that's going on at this period. Um, And it's a period of experimentation, of, of... why not? I'll try anything. I've got enough money. I don't really have to do what the record company's telling me to do. Um, and w- while I can't, I can't just stop because you know a, a writer has to write. A musician has to work on his or her music, mm-hmm. whether it's practicing on an instrument, writing a song, uh, singing in a room. Uh, walking, walking, taking a walk, and hearing songs in in your head—that that's going to happen. Yeah. But in this period, you know, he he takes a movie role in 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 uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, and he's great. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't he doesn't go on and and look for other other movie roles. This was an interesting thing to do. It was something worth worth trying. Um. You know, in in Chronicles, he pretty much dismisses his whole uh, career from one size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on same goes for healthcare that's why united healthcare offers flexible budget-friendly coverage for medical vision dental and more learn more at uh1.com ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The time of John Wesley Harding to the time of time out of mind and you're saying you know this 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 was a pretty long period of waste uh of pointlessness huh. and that's that's harsher than anybody else i think would be willing to grant him you know i'd say well who knows um but i think the renaissance the the rebirth the sense of mission and purpose begins again in 1992 i wouldn't wait that long but he might be right about John Wesley Harding. That might have been the last moment um, where he was doing something that nobody else could have done. You know, Phil Spector used to talk about people who make contributions. That was his word. Mm. Who makes a contribution? And he he said, you know, the Rolling Stones are great. They're a fantastic group. But they're not contributing anymore. He's saying this in about 19... 19- 68. He's hmm. saying that they're not contributing anymore. They're not making a difference. 
They're not shaping the whole music itself the way they once did. Um, and you could say that, you know, from from starting in, after John Wesley Harding, Bob Dylan wasn't contributing anymore. His career was continuing. He, con- he continued to make records. He continued to try this and to try that. But in the in the world, did it matter? If this album got made or if it didn't get made, did it really affect anybody's life? Did it make anybody's life better? Make anybody's life worse? Did it change our idea our idea of what music or culture or art could do, what it what it should do? Maybe not. Um did time out of mind do that? It sure did. Yeah. I think the period you're discussing, or one of the things you've picked up on after John Wesley Harding is, is it became more, maybe more apparent to people listening uh, to Dylan's music. Like they could actually pick up on maybe a reluctance within him. And and this period that you're talking about, I mean, the concert for Bangladesh was July 1971, which falls in line with the, the era we're talking about there was this constant push and pull. Like, he seemed to want to stop writing songs, quit being a star, and in some ways he did that. He slowed down a little bit. But in others, as you mentioned, he produced some really ambitious experimental work. He tried different things. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it it all comes down to the music. It comes down to what do you want to hear? What do you want to listen to? What speaks to you? And, you know, um what I found so puerile was people who who would write about self-portrait either at the time or, or now, and they'd say, well, uh, all the tired horses uh, in the sun, how am I going to get any writing done? Right. See, it's Bob Dylan saying he's having trouble writing songs. Or the boxer, you know, Paul Simon's, um, to me, quite putrid portrait of the poor boxer. It's really an analogy as as Dylan sings it for a songwriter. He's telling us, you know, just how how unappreciated and beaten down and marginalized you are if if you write songs. Um, you know, I really don't believe that Bob Dylan was trying to tell us about himself in that record or any other. Hmm. You know, this this, this guy um, he he creates. And he creates, like any artist, he creates fictional characters or mirrors or costumes uh, that people can inhabit, that he can inhabit, that listeners can inhabit, that the characters in the songs can inhabit. Yeah. You know, they're not stable. They're not fixed. Well, you, you've cited uh, Good As I've Been To You before as uh, a sea change for Dylan, but I'm curious if, I don't know if it's possible to look at these records beyond the performances and, and sort of the critical analysis. But I, do you find that it's difficult for critics to accept Dylan when he decides to interpret the work of other artists? Because there's, I have a theory about that, I think, that because he's such a strong writer himself, critics in particular feel like it's a waste of their time and his time to be spending time interpreting other people's works. And by the way, having said that, it, it, it's occurring to me now that beyond the performance of The Boxer, you actually just seem to actively dislike the, the song. Yeah, I do. <laughs> but um, no, I, I'm not aware that people um, don't like it when Bob Dylan sings other people's songs. He's great. He's a great interpreter. You know, over the last twenty, thirty years, he's sung, if not uh, score, if not hundreds, well, definitely hundreds of other people's songs. You know, there, there, there's someone who who once made a uh, a habit of tracking the uh, songs that Bob Dylan would do on tour yeah. uh, by other people, and and how uh, new songs would find their way into a set on a given night. Maybe just once. Maybe the, you know he would do some uh, uh, do a song once and never again. This guy noticed that I think it was a Blind Blake album was released on a given day, came out on a on a certain day uh, of unreleased, previously unheard Blind Blake recordings from the 1920s. And two of those songs turn up in Bob Dylan's set the very next night. 
In other words, Bob Dylan was out at the record store the day the Blind Blake album came out. He listened to it. He said, oh, that's great. I've got to do this. And the next night he did. Mm. Um, And I I just can't imagine anybody being impatient with with something like that. Yeah. I, I just don't get it. I, I don't know who's who has said that, who's been impatient that way. I'm not aware of it. Well, no, but I, I'm just wondering if it's a coincidence that these records that we've been discussing that were sort of given short shrift, if there's if it's beyond the fact beyond the actual records themselves, is it the fact that he chose to do this other material? That's what I was getting at. No, I don't think so. I think it's because it really did sound terrible. <laughs> a lot of it. Okay, that's fair. I feel like you may have answered this already, but what to you is the most striking aspect of this latest edition of the bootleg series? Um, you know, it is it is uh, a a reach that's coming through, an attempt to get to these songs, an attempt to say what what can I learn from these songs? Mm. You know, some people might learn from a song by studying it, by you know printing it out. Studying the words, um, getting a lead sheet, studying the way the melody works, how it's different from other songs, trying to figure out what makes it special. I think for somebody like Bob Dylan or maybe any musician, the way you get a song to speak to you, to tell you what it's really about, what secrets it holds, is to play it. Um, And I think that's what's going on and what you can hear uh, in so many of the performances on um, on this new set. Okay, and is this? Ans- I mean, he he already he put two versions of, of Alberta, an old Lead Belly song. Mm-hmm. Um, he put two versions of it on the original self portrait, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And on on this new set, there's a third version that nobody had ever heard before. It's so much better oh, really? <laughs> than the two he used. The first time around. How do you make sense of that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know either. I mean, you mentioned uh, Blind Willie McTell earlier, too. I mean, this, this, this is a whole other conversation about the choices that Dylan and his management team make and don't make about what gets out there. And, and, and it doesn't always seem to be based on the strength of the material. Well, you know, and people make mistakes. People say, no, this sounds better. And then years later, they say, no, I was wrong. Right, right. Does this answer then reflect, uh, because I haven't read them yet, and I'm eager to, does this answer that you've just given reflect uh, what you wrote about uh, in the liner notes for this uh, series? Is there something you can tell us about those? No, I mean, they they will have to speak for themselves. (laughs) There's no no great mystery to it. It it was just a chance to, um, you know, to, to let these... To listen okay. and and to talk back—that's what any any critical writing is. You know, it's it's talking back. Yeah, forgive me for the vagueness of the question, but because I haven't actually read them, I, I don't have particular questions to ask you about them. So, I figured while I had you on the line, I might as well get your take on it. So I appreciate that. Uh, the the cover art. Do you know anything about the cover art for this new? No, so- no, you don't, eh? It's not. Don't know a thing about it. No, you don't know if it's a, a Dylan work itself or anything. I was I was curious about that as well. Well, um, I assume it's something he painted, mm-hmm. but I don't know when or anything. I don't know anything about oh, okay. it. Okay, okay, that's fair. It seems to me that over the past couple of decades, you've gone from writing about Dylan from afar to actually you seem to be you seem to have been embraced by his camp. You've written liner notes for a few releases now. Can you discuss why and when you suppose your relationship with with Dylan and his legacy sort of changed? I think it, it I, I don't know, the, I, I don't really know how to answer that, but my relationship as a, as a fan, you know, as a writer, as a listener, with Bob Dylan, this, you know, person who I don't know, uh, who makes music, it changed when his music began to speak to me again in a, in a terrifically powerful way. Uh, and with Good As I've Been to You, World Gone Wrong, Time Out of Mind, Modern Times, um, and Love and Theft, um, again and again and again, I was both hearing somebody who later in life is not reinventing himself, 
but he has uh, found that he has things to do that he never did before. Hmm. And there are things that he didn't know that he has uh, glimmers of knowledge about now and the ability to, and, and, and the urge to pass that on. Um, and so it, it also led me to go back and hear everything that he had done before in a somewhat different way. Um, and to really hear him as, as someone who is uh, embodying a legacy, the, the legacy of American music, and embodying that legacy for anybody, you know, not just for himself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you can hear that going on in in the very beginning of his career, and, and you can hear it going on um, all through it. You know, people talk about Bob Dylan stealing, copying, mm-hmm. plagiarizing. When he says... Um, it's nine below zero and three o'clock in the afternoon. Well, you know, nine below zero is from a Sonny Boy Williamson song. Did he steal that line from Sonny Boy Williamson? Of course he didn't. Sonny Boy Williamson was talking to him and he was talking back. Hmm. Um, and I think you can you can hear that so much more vividly uh, over the last 20 years than you could in the 20 years before that. So, you know, the music came alive for me again. And so, um, so I had something to say about it. I hope yeah. that I didn't before. Um, and if if there's any change, that's it. You know, it's just my responding to something that uh, I can't live without. And it's obviously been appreciated and picked up by the Dylan Camp. Oh, who knows? You know? <laughs> um, I mean, they need somebody. They need somebody to write liner notes every time there's a new edition of the Bootleg series, and all different kinds of people have done that. Yeah. Sean Malentz, yeah. Tony Glover, uh, all sorts of people. Um, um, uh, Larry Sloman wrote fabulous liner notes to Telltale Signs. Right. Um, there are all kinds of people. There are a lot of people out there, and I hope, I hope you know that as this goes on, that they get. Uh, all kinds of surprising people to write uh, the notes. You know, maybe Cat Power should write the notes to the next one. Who knows? Yeah, right. Well, you and you also wrote the liner notes, I believe, to the mono recordings box, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, that's why I, it seems like it's not just a an occasional thing. I feel like you've, you've... Maybe I'm misreading it, but it seems like you've done a few things. That's why I asked... Oh, you're just trying to say I'm a lackey of Bob Dylan Incorporated. (laughs) No, I'm not. Not at all. I just think it's interesting that you've gone from, in a sense, you you have, they have embraced you in in your opinions about uh, his work. And that's, that's a cool thing. No, sure. I'm, I'm honored and flattered. Yeah. Your first interaction with Dylan was in 1963, I believe. What's, what's your memory of it? Well, I have a very clear memory. I went to, I, I took my then girlfriend in Philadelphia, where I was spending the summer, to a Joan Baez show in New Jersey. It was in a field. Um, I mean, there was a theater set up, but it was in a field. And um, Joan Baez was from my hometown, Menlo Park, California. I'd see her around all the time. Mm-hmm. So it was like, well, let's go see Joan Baez. I'll take you to see Joan Baez. And so we went. And in the middle of the show, she says, I want to bring out a friend of mine. And out comes this guy, and I'm sure she mentioned his name, but I didn't catch it. Um, And out comes this guy who who sort of uh, hunched shoulders and his head is down. He looks kind of embarrassed. Um, And he looks dusty. I mean, he, he, he looks like he's been wandering around in, in the field outside the, the tent theater that this was taking place in. And uh, I don't know if it was the first song he did or the third or whatever, but he sang with God on our side and it just, you know, froze me. Um, I listened to that song. It was like my whole life was opening up. Somebody was telling the story of my entire education. You know, this is 1963. Mm -hmm. I haven't gone to college yet. My whole education through grade school and high school and all the public school history textbooks that I'd read, 
and every and it was just being rewritten. It was just being presented again. Everything is so familiar, but everything is different. Everything is off. Um, and it was one of those moments where I hear a song for the first time, and I know every word. I know I know every rhythm. You know, ten minutes later, two weeks later, I know everything. It just imp- imprinted itself. Mm. And I was just absolutely stunned, and and I had no idea what this was, what who this person was, what what this kind of uh, where this kind of effect came from. I never really experienced anything like it before. Maybe since you know I heard "Don't Be Cruel," maybe, hmm. um, and that was a while before. So I I kind of didn't really pay any attention to the rest of the show. I just was replaying this moment over and over in my mind and after the show i noticed joan baez getting into her um, jaguar xke which at the time was by far the most glamorous car on the road mm-hmm. and and maybe the most glamorous car ever built i mean it was really something and um and i saw this guy uh, sitting, sort of crouched, squatting um, by the tent, trying to light a cigarette. It was very windy, and I went up to him and I, I said, "You were, you were terrific." I mean, I just had to say something. Mm-hmm. I was so overwhelmed, and he didn't look up. He was still trying to get this match lit, and he said, "I was shit, man. I was just shit," and I had. You know, I didn't know what to say to that, so I just left. Um, yes, that was my first encounter with Bob Dylan. Um, and I don't know why he thought his his performance was so bad, but it was good enough for me. <laughs> Have you had occasion to interact with him on, on such a level uh, since then? Only one other time. Um, in 1997, he was given what was then and still remains the, the least known big deal art prize that there is. When Lillian Gish, the great uh, silent film actress, died, she established in her will um, a prize, the Dorothy and Lillian Gish Prize for Achievement in the Arts. Hmm. And the idea, she wrote a very long charge as, as to who this should go to. And it starts out that it's it's for performing arts. You know, it's for... It's for uh, drama it's for dance and then she says well you know and there's also music and and for that matter there's there's writing and and all of this can be a a form of performance too and finally it it says this should go to someone who's made a contribution to the beauty of the world well that's casting your net pretty wide that's good (laughs) Um, and the and the board of the um, foundation that she set up to administer this award decided that the award should go to somebody who who had made a a really significant contribution in his or her work, uh, but who was still contributing. You know, who who was not a relic. Who who you know, we're not going to wheel somebody out and say we really appreciate all you've done in your in your life, and it's too bad you can't even talk anymore. Um, so the first, I think the first prize went to um, Philip Glass, and and then it went to Frank Gehry, the architect, mm-hmm. and then it went to uh, Robert Wilson, the opera director, and the fourth prize um, went to Bob Dylan. It was the unanimous choice of the board. You know, it's since gone to Laurie Anderson. It's gone to you know theatrical lighting directors. It's, mm on to uh, Isabella Allende, uh, all sorts of marvelous people. Pete Seeger. Nice. Um, and, but nobody knows about this prize. It doesn't get any attention. Um, the award ceremonies, ceremonies don't get written up. It's really weird. Hmm. And at the time, um, you know, I hadn't heard of it uh, really but they asked me if uh, they said they, you know, Bob Dylan was going to receive the prize for 1997. They asked if I would give a talk at the awards ceremony, and I agreed to do it because I knew Bob Dylan would be there, 
And the reason I knew he would be there is that this award is for $300,000. In other words, this is a big deal prize. Right. And I figured even Bob Dylan would show up for that. Um, so I went, and um, you know, there's a little reception before the award ceremony begins, and and um, Dylan is there, and we're introduced, and we and we talk for a little bit, and he asked me the question that you always ask a writer if you don't know anything, if you don't have anything else to ask. He says, "What are you working on now?" And I had just published. Um, my book, Invisible Republic. And I knew that he, he liked this book. He had read the book. He liked it. I mean, I'd, I'd heard that, and I was really touched. Um, and I said, well, you know, uh, nothing. You know, I, I just published this book. I, I don't have a new project yet. And he said, well, why don't you write part two of Invisible Republic? He said, you know, you only scratched the surface. <laughs> And I thought that was that was just the best thing anybody could have said, because he was completely right. I knew that, um, and it meant that he had really read the book oh. and he had really understood it, and he knew how much more there was to say about um, you know the subject I had bitten off. I I was just so pleased. Uh, you know, all anybody any writer wants is for someone to read him or to read her and and to tell the writer something that he or she didn't know about his or her own work. Right. And in in a way, you know, Dylan really did that. So I was delighted. And that is those are the two sole interactions he and I have ever had. Where is this award handed out? Um, as far as I know, it's always in New York City, but, you know, this place or that place. Oh, okay. It's an American. I just, I didn't know, I, as you say, I, I don't know anything about this award, and it sounds like right. it's prestigious, so. It's just nuts that, I, I, I think it was first given in, uh, in 94, so, you know, this is, this is, we're, we're coming up on 20 years yeah. of this award, and it's still some kind of bizarre secret. <laughs> That's very odd. Uh, the Americana Rama tour uh, just—I uh, believe it's wrapped up now—and I saw the show in Toronto. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, this featured uh, Bob Dylan, Wilco, My Morning Jacket, and in my case in Toronto it was Richard Thompson, and it was one of the best shows I've seen. I've seen uh, Bob Dylan like forty times or something like that. Uh, did you get a chance to see that tour? No, um, my daughter saw it in St. Paul, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, I've I've listened to I've listened to recordings of that concert. That's where he did "Susie Baby" by Bobby V, who mm-hmm. was in the audience. Um, and you know, I'm sorry I missed it, but it didn't come where I was. Well, the show I saw in Toronto was really excellent. Um, it was uh, there was it was a great show. Dylan's set was uh, amazing, and he actually ended up bringing Jim James from My Morning Jacket and Jeff Tweedy of Wilco on stage and. They collaborated for the first time on the tour. I think it might have been the first time they actually met right on stage there, which was quite interesting. And yeah, just a magical set. I really enjoyed it. Um, when was the last time you would have seen uh, Bob Dylan live? I know you're fond of going to see him. Do you do you recall the last time? Uh, hmm. It was last year at the, um, I guess the, the Capitol Theater reopening. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in September. You know, his Tempest had just come out. He wasn't doing songs from it yet. Maybe he did one song from Tempest. It was a very small theater, about 2,000 people. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, it was a rough and tumble, very intense show. Hmm. Okay. What did you make of Tempest? I, I don't believe I've read uh, your commentary on it. I I just think I think it's it's uh, it's a tremendous record, and it just gets better and stronger every time you play it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, early Roman kings and Scarlet Town, and and um, the song about the Titanic, and so many of those songs. They just have uh, they have 
they have so many dimensions to them. Yeah. You know, they're they're rooms within rooms within rooms. Um I I think Scarlet Town is just uh is just a miracle. You know, taking taking Barbara Allen and saying, "Well, what if you lived in the town where this happened? What what if you grew up there?" Mm. And and the shadow of this event hangs over everybody, everyone who's born there, everyone who dies there and some way they internalize this this um weird double suicide that happened 500 years ago um and and nobody can escape it and you know saying what what if a song got into your blood what if a song took over your identity and you couldn't escape and you had to wrestle with it all of your life um and that's what happens to everybody in that song you know they're all they're all trapped yeah, I was um, I was really taken aback by how sort of I find the record I love the record, but I find it quite dark and biting. Like when I, when I hear a song like "Pay in Blood," it seems to be one of the most overtly uh, I don't know rageful songs I've heard Bob Dylan play and uh, write rather. Well, go back and listen to "Love and Theft." Well, yes, I mean, there, there there is a strain of of vengeance and retribution and, and violence running through that album um and and modern times i mean hmm. think of ain't talking at the end of modern times i'll just slaughter them where they lay yeah um and you know it it, it takes tremendous delicacy to put across a line like that and make you believe it uh and you don't scream it you don't whisper it you have to find um a natural voice yeah i'll just slaughter them where they lay because that's what I need to do. Well, I, I wrote a I wrote an academic paper on love and theft, um, and I, you know, you were talking earlier about how uh, Bob isn't necessarily he's not plagiarizing; he's having conversations with uh, historical record with a historical record on some level. And you know, there's whole speeches that he quotes uh, from slightly notorious sources um, in uh, throughout Love and Theft. I mean, I'm thinking of Bedford Forest, for example. Um, there's a whole speech that he uh, quotes. So I don't know. He seems, yeah, he seems really, uh, particularly in the last 20 years, seems very interested in sort of war, figures of war, historical figures, and what kind of drives them. Well, you know, he he's very plain about that in Chronicles, mm. about the Civil War. He says the Civil War was the template for everything I would ever write. Um, yeah, that's you know, right. That, yeah. That's when everything gets down to... Um, blood and sand, and um, everything gets down to the irreducible elements, and that's that's what I that's what I'm trying to reach uh, when I write and when I sing. Those aren't his words; that's yeah. you know my characterization of what he's saying there. Yeah. Well, to borrow a page from Bob Dylan, I'd like to ask you uh, what you're working on. <laughs> What's next for you, Greel? Um, I have a book coming out next year called um the history of rock and roll in 10 songs oh and and that's what it is can you can you sort of reveal what the 10 songs are is it too early to say no i'm not going to get into that now (laughs) okay that's fair do you have like an online home where can people learn more about these things um no i don't no okay can you tell us who's publishing this new book yale yale okay so if people want more information they can they should Google Yale. Basically. I guess so. <laughs> well, once again, the new Bob Dylan collection, the Bootleg Series, Volume 10, Another Self-Portrait, 1969 to 1971, featuring liner notes by Greil Marcus and many rarities, is available on August 27th. Bob Dylan is going on an extensive tour of Europe in October, and you can learn more about all of these things at bobdylan.com. Uh, Greel, it was a tremendous honor and a great pleasure to get to speak with you today about all of these things. So once again, I'd like to just thank you for your time. Well, it was a real pleasure, and um hope it was worth your time. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph 
every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.